Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. Before we go any further, I want to thank everyone who supported Talking Animals and WMNF's just completed winter fun drive. We were fortunate enough to reach the Talking Animals goal and travel a nice distance beyond. But WMF did not make the overall station goal. So if you missed a chance to donate or would just like to make an additional pledge, please visit WMNF.org. Meanwhile, my guest today is Tori Linder, a producer of Saving the Florida Wildlife Corridor, a new documentary that travels through the corridor, the 18 million acre statewide network of public preserves and private working lands, while examining the ongoing conflict between Florida's rampant development and its green infrastructure. There will be a screening of this film tonight, February 23rd at 7 p.m. at the Tampa Theater. The screening will be followed by a panel discussion about efforts to conserve the Florida Wildlife Corridor featuring Carlton Ward Jr., National Geographic photographer and noted conservationist, Tori Linder, my guest on the show today, who I just mentioned, of course, and a producer of the film. Carrie Leitze, a sixth-generation Florida rancher, also profiled in the film. Danny Schmidt, who directed the documentary, and very likely others that are involved in the movie in one capacity, either on screen or behind the scenes. Admission is what we call ticketless, but registration is required, and we'll discuss the film and tonight's screening with Tori Linder in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's program, I'll speak with Suzanne King, organizer of Gulfport Gets Rescued, the annual rescue and adoption event that spreads across a big hunk of Gulfport. It's happening this Saturday, February 26th. There are typically dozens of rescue groups at the event, and most have adoptable pets on hand. we about some of those groups and other activities taking place throughout the day. More on this a bit later in today's show. Right now, though, let's talk with Tori about the documentary Saving the Florida Wildlife Corridor, tonight's screening and the panel discussion and more. With a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885. This is Tori Linder on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Tori. Good morning, Duncan. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, thanks. So, so nice of you to join us here on Talking Animals this morning. We have cool things and important things to talk about. So I'm going to guess most folks listening aren't as steeped in the Florida Wildlife Corridor as you are, just as I imagine most listeners probably haven't seen the film, though they can rectify that tonight as we'll uh, discuss more in a bit. But I think we should therefore start maybe kind of a conversation on the, the most fundamental remedial kind of level. So what more precisely is the Florida Wildlife Corridor? That's a great question. The Florida Wildlife Corridor is a network of public wilderness preserves and private working lands that includes swamps, pastures, forests, even suburban areas. It spans from Florida Bay into the south to the Georgia and Alabama borders, covering nearly 18 million acres across our state. This wildlife corridor provides really vital connectivity for wide-ranging species like the Florida panther or the Florida boxer. It's also critically important um, for us as humans here in the state. It, it provides fresh drinking water, and other vital natural resources. So it's hugely important, even if people don't necessarily know or, or previously maybe didn't necessarily know the Florida Wildlife Corridor, but what it, what it represents is super important to probably anybody who lives in Florida and enjoys all the sort of features that people tend to enjoy, hiking, swimming, uh, all the other things that go with that. So, so even if they didn't know it in those terms, they probably know it and care about it generally. Yeah, I like to encourage people to think about it like a, like a green thread, like a green line running through the center of our state. 
that provides the green infrastructure we're all dependent on, the same way a highway or a school or even a hospital services our needs in our cities. And when we say, because I've mentioned it once and you've mentioned it twice so far, when we say green infrastructure, what do we mean exactly by that term? That's a great question. So green infrastructure is referring to you know, really this mosaic of, of landscapes that I mentioned earlier, the swamps, the pastures, the forests that provide um, fresh drinking water, clean air. Um, and, and when I say fresh drinking water, you know, I'm, I'm really uniquely referring to water filtration. Here in Florida, um, we are a water world, as most of our residents know. We sit just above our aquifer in most cases. We have the highest density of freshwater springs in the entire world. And what that means is that what's happening just above the surface has very serious and lasting ramifications for what's happening below the surface um, and the future of our aquifer. And so natural green protected areas allow our waters the chance to, to filter and clean themselves. Um, it's also, you know, critically important for our estuaries, our really highly productive ecosystems where fresh and salt water meet. And you see those, you know, all across Florida, ranging from um, Florida Bay the Indian River Lagoon or Charlotte Harbor. One of the really interesting estuaries featured in the film um, is, is the mouth of the Swanee River there at Cedar Key, Florida. Yeah. So here then is a, a question that uh, maybe is a t- good time to ask. How do you feel in light of what you've said and described so far about the Florida Wildlife Corridor? How do you feel that the future of the Florida Wildlife Corridor influences the future of Florida itself? I really like to think of the Florida Wildlife Corridor as, as a sustainable development framework or plan for our state. It, it shows us um, the areas most vital to protect and, and ensure connectivity. You know, we have a remarkable legacy of conservation here in Florida. I'm currently sitting in the greater Everglades region where we have 4 million contiguous acres of public land. That's remarkable um, and not something many other eastern states help. But if we don't protect these linkages in the Florida Wildlife Corridor that have yet to be protected, they're primarily working lands, cattle ranches, and citrus groves at risk of development, um, we very well stand the chance of the greater Everglades ecosystem losing connection to North America. And that will have devastating effects for the recovery of species like the Florida panther. So let's talk a little bit about the development, which, which we might now characterize sort of as the uh, mortal enemy in some regards of Florida Wildlife Corridor. How rampant is the development? What are some ways we can quantify this seemingly explosive growth? Interesting question, and I would definitely not define development as the enemy of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. Okay. Rather here, we're presenting a vision of how we can continue to develop our state to, to meet the needs of a growing population, uh, but do so in a really smart way that, frankly, is replicable in other states across the nation and the world. So here in Florida, we're gaining an average of about a 1,000 residents a day. We've become the third most populous country in the state. And as we do move to make room for those new residents, on average, we're losing about 12 acres an hour to development. That is a staggering statistic. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. In fact, let me ask you about those. Those are pretty jarring statistics. A thousand people a day moving to Florida it just kind of snaps your head a little bit. What is the source for that statistic and, and the 12-acre statistic as well? So the Florida 2070 report mm-hmm. uh, produced 
by Thousand Friends of Florida and the University of Florida um, has really shared some great data that, that shows our current development trends and projects them into the future. It's interesting because the Florida 2070 report um, does show the potential for a bleak future for Florida, um, yet it also reflects the incredible opportunity we have here to ensure um, connectivity for generations in protecting the Florida Wildlife Corridor. I think, you know, it does very clearly make the case for um, us looking at building up instead of out and um, the redevelopment of some of our urban cores. So if we have a thousand people a day moving to Florida, I know you said earlier that I was probably a little bit uh, glib or snarky about my thing about the uh, development being the maybe the, the enemy of, of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. But... I mean, just by sheer numbers and the housing and other things that are have to accommodate that kind of explosive growth that almost inherently requires new housing developments to accommodate those kind of numbers. So I know you're saying you don't look at it that way. You're looking at it at a smart way to sort of acknowledge the growth and then still try to protect the corridor. So what are some ways that can be done? I mean, to what extent can there be a cooperative effort given the two factions that Ideally, greatly, you know, it'd be wonderful if they could coexist, but they seem like they're slightly at odds just by their inherent natures. That's a great question. If we look at this at, at really a, a macro level of the state opportunity here um, for investment, I think we have a great opportunity to invest in, in the conservation of our current green spaces and land um, through the con- do conservation easements on working land, which is something the film really highlights. Um, Florida Wildlife Corridor, as I mentioned earlier, is comprised of 18 million acres. About 10 million acres are already protected. And the remaining 8 million acres of opportunity area that we are advocating for the protection of are primarily working land. 33% of those lands are ranch lands and 43% are timberlands. In this film, you really hear from the voices of those industries who share their concern for the future of Florida's economy as well um, and advocate for, as I mentioned, conservation easements. What conservation easements do is ensure that these working lands can remain working for generations to come, but ensure that they will not be developed. So they, they ensure we have a robust agricultural industry in Florida for generations to come into perpetuity. Okay, let's, I think we have a, a caller that'd like to get involved in the conversation. Let's uh, do that. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Tori Linder. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Did you have a question or a comment for Tori? Yeah, I, uh, I have to tell you, I'm a native-born Floridian. I'm 58 years old. I've seen tremendous changes in Pinellas, Pasco, and Hillsborough County. And, I mean, for me, I, I know there's property rights out there. I have some property. But the fact of the matter is that we really want to protect Florida because I've done giant projects for Tampa Bay Water trying to get water to the Tampa Bay area. And, for me, they should have something like if you've got 100 acres, you can only subdivide it down to five acres. And anything under 100 acres, you can't divide it down to anything less than like two acres or one acre so that people can have wells and septics and not uh, necessarily do, you know, damage to the the adjacent properties. And we would have an, an instant boom in construction and people moving here. But the fact of the matter is we would have a lot more green area for the balance of Florida. 
And I think that, uh, you know, if the government wanted to isolate a couple of, you know, 500 acres here and there and there for housing that the government runs, you can't depend on people like uh, open uh, free enterprise to, to try to give away free rent and low rent. They don't do that. I hate to say it, so just forget it. Yeah. But if you can get people, the government, isolated locations to do it, then, uh, you know, that'd be it. And then, of course, the people could profit from those houses they build and sell all they want to, and they can sell it, sell it, flip it, and flip it. That's fine. But we've got to limit the amount of green area that we are impacting. Because I'm an amateur herpetologist. I love animals. And I can tell you, it's going to get down to where we can't find a turtle, a toad, or anything. Thank you. Yeah. Wait, one more question, if you're still online. Yeah. Okay, because uh, I'd like to let the uh, Tory respond in a sec, but I just have a question. So the thing you proposed, the, the example for the 100 acres and, and sort of limiting what could happen there, how far that could be subdivided, uh, would that be a state-mandated requirement? How would you see that actually playing out if, if that were to, to go a step further? Well, all statutes are drilled down to the local municipality. They all state, they all start at, at the state level. Mm-hmm. And then the counties can manipulate them and then the cities can communi- can uh, manipulate them. But they can't really make it any less stringent. They can only make it more stringent. Yeah. So if that was the, the master plan, you know, I mean, it would probably take a couple of years to get it through the statutes if they could get it to pass. But really, the people that have the land now would make a windfall, which is fine. I don't care about that. I care about the end product being that there is a lot more green space on a lot. We don't, I mean, I hate, I feel bad for people who can't afford living in Florida and all that. But if you're worried about the environment of Florida, you have to have a fixed number of people and X amount of space uh, green on every lot. That should be, it sounds like a four. Formula basically is, from your standpoint, the only way this could could work over time. Yeah, and I'm in the development business. I mean, I've, I've I've cleared hundreds and hundreds of acres myself. I've watched it. I've built structures. I've did, I've done all that. I'm a GCM mechanical contractor, but I love Florida more than anything else. Yeah, and that would be my plan, and that's been my plan for like uh, about two or three years. I've been you know contemplating that like uh, a plan to make it work. Okay. Simple. Well, I appreciate it. Can you hang tight just one second in case uh, Tori has either a question or or a comment for you? Tori, go ahead. Really appreciate um, your comment and and perspective there. It definitely sounds like you're feeling some tremendous growth in the southwest Florida region. Um, And, you know, you bring up an interesting point that there's so much to be done at both the county and state level. I'm here in Collier County where in November of 2020, a great referendum was passed. Um, for conservation collier which encourages additional um, land acquisition at the county level uh, of sensitive sensitive lands and that was done with over 75 percent of the popular vote here um, it really gives me great hope and optimism for what's possible in other counties across the state I will also add at the state level we've seen some great wins for the Florida wildlife corridor Um In 2021, the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act was passed with bipartisan unanimous support, which really designated um, the geography for the first time as a state priority um, for our state agencies. Additionally, we saw in total $400 million um, designated towards the Florida Florida Forever funding um, through the state's Department of Environmental Protection, which is working to acquire sensitive and priority lands across the state, the majority of which are in the Florida Wildlife Corridor. Okay, caller, thank you for your uh, comment, and Tori, thanks for uh, for responding. 
Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate Thank you. So this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Tori Linder, a producer of Saving the Florida Wildlife Corridor, a new documentary screening tonight at the Tampa Theater, followed by a panel discussion featuring folks involved with the film, both on screen and behind the scenes. If you'd like to ask Tori a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So, Tori, as we've noted, you're a producer on Saving the Florida Wildlife Corridor, but I suspect you could easily be one of the Floridians featured on screen describing their connection to the corridor and why it's important to protect it. Tell me a little bit about your story, your own history with Florida and your connection to the corridor. Happy to. That is correct. My family has been granting in Florida for five generations, um, so I... I grew up um, in the city, spent nearly every afternoon and weekend working on the ranch. And it it was those early childhood experiences that really ended up fostering um, my passion for protecting the Florida Wildlife Corridor. Um, you know, when you, when you spend so much time immersed in our beautiful green spaces here in Florida, I think you really feel the loss when, when they disappear. Um, or change, but I actually started my my career in conservation working in in sub-Saharan Africa. I had the incredible opportunity to work with an NGO called Conservation International in South Africa and Northern Kenya. And through that process of really getting to work with and learn from several indigenous communities, including the Maasai and Samburu, I came to realize how unique our own landscape, our own backyard here in Florida is, in, in part, frankly, just by the enthusiasm I would hear um, from colleagues in, in Africa when I would share what it, where I was from. You know, it's, it's funny, but for a pastoralist who spends their life um, walking across fairly arid regions looking for grass for their cattle and not sure um, anywhere sounds more like paradise than a river of grass, Yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is how we describe the Florida Everglades. Um, so the so long story short is um, through that through that incredible you know experience, every time I'd get on a flight and come home, I would look out the window and realize another chunk of my own backyard had disappeared. Um, and my colleague, Carlton Ward Jr., reminded me um, at that moment that there were about 100 people in line to, to take my job in northern Kenya um, and encouraged me to come join the fight to protect the Florida Wildlife Corridor. I'm so glad I did. Yeah, well, it seems like a natural homecoming for sure for you, but uh, but what an interesting uh, detour, as you've noted, just the sharp contrast in all kinds of ways. So that's interesting, but sometimes it's those, those kind of experiences away from home that fuel your actual passion and focus uh, back at home, which sounds like exactly what's happened here. Yes, it definitely put perspective on the remarkable opportunity here. And, you know, we as Floridians, I think, so easily forget the precious resources and frankly remarkable stories we have here in our state. You know, the recovery of the Florida panther is is one that's fairly unique to have a big cat making a recovery in a time when big cats across the globe are in decline. And, And as we've mentioned, they're doing so in the face of urban development here in Southwest Florida, and um, I'm certainly encouraged the bear breeding territories starting to move north. I think we have the opportunity 
here in Florida and protecting the Florida Wildlife Corridor to really set a, a national and global precedent um, of, of sustainable development and, and show that it is possible for people and nature to thrive together. And Tori, an email just came in and says, thank you, Duncan. We love Florida Wildlife Corridor. Yes, conservation easements, but also highway over slash underpasses are a critical need. And these are from people who identify themselves as Florida, uh, I mean, Florida Corridor supporters. So Yeah, that's such a great point. I actually was under a, a DOT underpass that had been retrofitted for Panthers yesterday in LaBelle, Florida, um, under State Road 80. That's a great wildlife crossing made possible really by the work of the Nature Conservancy Florida, who um, ensured protection of lands on either side of that underpass. Um, you know, we've really in Florida been leading the way with wildlife Crossing, so the leading cause of death for the Florida panther remains vehicle collision. I, at a, at a federal level, am really encouraged. We saw $300 million of funding for wildlife crossings in the Build Back Better um, bill, which, you know, I, I think is going to have great um, ramifications for conservation efforts across this country, but that's a key point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And of course, in terms of the Panther rebounding, uh, we were fortunate enough a few months back here on the show to speak with the Carlton Ward, who did a great piece for National Geographic that sort of really captured the way that Panthers are rebounding. And uh, had, of course, because it's Carlton Ward, had uh, just stunning photos. And I should note, of course, that he's also a key uh, figure speaking in this film. So with that in mind, in fact, let, let's talk more about the documentary itself, starting with how you and the other uh, filmmakers approached the storytelling you wanted to deliver. Was there a, like a single kind of fundamental story you set out to tell with other stories kind of chosen to support that core one? Yes, our team had really historically been focused on, on telling the stories of exploration and wildlife across the state. With this film, we wanted to tell the story of, of why protecting the corridor matters for Florida's economy. As I mentioned, it's primarily working lands that we've been advocating for the protection of, um, with agriculture and tourism being two of the leading drivers of Florida's economy. I mean, we have a 17, or sorry, $7.4 billion agricultural industry. We have fishing alone um, is a $5 billion industry. And so we were, we set out to make a film um, that, that our hope and our aspiration was really for every Floridian, um, whether they call a coastal community in the Panhandle or um, a suburban area in Central Florida home that they could see themselves in and identify with. We spent several months in pre-production interviewing people all over the state um, who represent this landscape, who call the Florida Wildlife Corridor home. And in the end, I, I like to say that the film really became a visual road trip from the north to south of Florida, following these day-to-day um, lives and, and work of Floridians who, yes, are dependent on this healthy, connected ecosystem. It's, it's also, you know, an interesting um, piece. This film was produced by the National Geographic Society Impact Media's Impact Media team. Um, and they've worked to tell stories of global importance around uh, highlighting um, conservation efforts ranging from the Okavango Wilderness Project in Botswana um, to Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique and the American Prairie Reserve um, in Montana. And so it was great to really follow um, in the narrative of some of those other films and highlight why the Florida Wildlife Corridor is a globally recognized conservation priority. 
I mean, it really does kind of reflect that orientation of the National Geographic Society and, um, I mean, just the way the film is shot and presented. And, and again, there's, as you kind of alluded to, there's just a wonderful array of Floridians featured in the film that represents various links, of course, to the corridor, but various uh, occupations, various geographical locations. So we've got, you know, Carlton Ward, who I just alluded to, but we've got like a tree farmer, a bear biologist, clam farmers who actually aren't their relatively recent transplants to Florida, but came here to, to sort of start this enterprise. Uh, Everglades guide, a fishing guide, and a sixth-generation rancher. So you really get, as you travel through that corridor with these folks, you get an amazing number of stories and perspectives and details uh, from them and kind of what their perspectives are based on their connection to the corridor, what they do for a living or what they and or what they're just passionate about in terms of Florida and what it means to them in terms of the corridor and protecting it. And the thing that, that I thought was really great is that you cover so much ground and it's really striking visually, as I think I've mentioned once or twice. But it's all it accomplishes all those things in like a running time that's under a half an hour. So was there a specific kind of goal to say, hey, let's try to do this, 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 and this and set, a, set our kind of agenda, but let's keep it to 30 minutes or less if we can? That is a great question. <laughs> and, uh... I, I, a painful one. I think at times we spent about six months in post-production on this film. Editing. Um, trying to cut it down. Editing, yeah. And, you know, certainly nearly every character featured in this film could have an entire feature documentary in their own right. Yeah. The story is just so beautiful and so rich. Um, but we did want to, we did want to keep this shorter in length uh, for it to really be accessible. Um, and, and engaging um, sort of Floridians that, have, you know, hour to hour and a half runtime gets a little bit trickier. That said, you know, if, if people cannot make it to the screening tonight at the Tampa Theater, I really encourage them to screen the film online with WEDU PBS. You can do that by visiting savingthefloridawildlifecorridor.com. But Duncan, just to get back to, to kind of one point that you were making, I think a great takeaway for me um in the production of this film. And we spent a month on the road living in an RV in August 2020. So you can only imagine what that was like, mm. uh, dodging both a pandemic and hurricanes um, in production. But really that sentiment that we are so dependent on on our neighbors upstream and downstream for that matter um, came kind of blazing out for me from this experience. Um, I think we forget that often or, or get isolated within our local regions, but Floridians understand and, and care about the importance of their environment. Um, and we are, we are inextricably linked through our land and waters. That was really deeply encouraging for me. With the goal and what I can only imagine was some long, long days in the editing room to uh, just based on what's in the film, which is great and the stories are great, but I can only imagine there was more people and or more footage that you just felt like, oh, we gotta, we've got to, like, it's going to kill us, but we got to lose this. we got to lose a few minutes here. we got to, I mean, just the cutting, the editing must have just been really uh, a huge challenge. But talk to me a little bit about the objectives, ultimately, about of the film. I assume, at least, that it's chiefly an educational enterprise, that that's what the film aims to do. Absolutely. So we produced this film with the goal of educating um Florida's public about the value of protecting and advocating the Florida Wildlife Corridor and also our state leaders and lawmakers. We had the pleasure of screening this film um, last 
spring in, in Tallahassee during the legislative session. And just last week, we screened it at the state capitol, um, bringing really that that reminder of how necessary it is to invest in in our state land. And is there, beyond just a general answer, is there an intended audience that when you made this film, you made it this way and you had this educational intent and you, again, struggled mightily, I'm sure, to, to get it to its lean running time. Was there a, a more specific intended audience that you kind of had in mind besides just generally, hey, anybody who watches this is going to be struck or learn some things or be just wowed by the, the, the beauty of the footage or whatever. But was there is there kind of a target audience within that? I think we, we definitely um, had in mind our state policymakers and leaders who have the capacity and ability to really influence the future of the corridor um, and the future of the state. Mm-hmm. We chose to tell a very optimistic story here, um, one of legacy and, and one of connection. There's, you know, when you think about environmental media broadly, there's a lot of different ways to address these issues and, and, you know, historically, I think we have seen more wildlife-driven narratives and in some cases negative narratives um, from the environmental community when it comes to communication. We really approached this as an opportunity to celebrate Florida's incredible conservation legacy um, and to remind others of the the potential legacy that exists um, by continuing to build on that. Let me let folks know who might have tuned in a bit late. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Tori Linder, producer of Saving the Florida Wildlife Corridor, a new documentary screening tonight at the Tampa Theater, followed by a panel discussion. No tickets are needed for the screening, but registration is required. We'll get the details on that from Tori in a sec. But we invite you in our final moments or so here to uh, join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. So with those kind of objectives in mind, if the documentary achieves kind of the best outcomes that you and your fellow filmmakers had in mind, what would that look like uh, shortly or a little bit down the road even? I think continued investment in our state land protection programs, the Florida Forever and Rural and Family Lands, I've been really encouraged by the proposed budget on this legislative session that we are going to see continued um, investment around that $300 million mark um, in the acquisition of our state lands. But more broadly than that, I, I hope that this film encourages Floridians from all walks of life to think about how they can get involved in advocating for the wild places um, that are so dear to them and, and also that they are dependent on. And, you know, how each and every one of us engages in that can vary greatly. I really like to encourage people to get out, explore these wild places, take family, take friends and, and help them fall in love. Yeah. Um, with our natural areas, support our state's environmentally driven economy from hiring a fishing guide to eating cedar key clams. Um, that's how we show our policymakers, our leaders in, in the private sector as well, that protecting this landscape doesn't just make ecological sense. 
but also economic stuff. Yeah, the people that do see this film, just kind of regular Floridians who just have busy, complicated lives, might not have really had an occasion to think about some of these things, including the gigantic influx. I'm still can't get, you know, can't get over that 1,000 people a day and just the impact that that necessarily has. So people that say, yeah, uh, when I have time this weekend or, or one of these weekends, you know, I'll go hiking or I'll go canoeing or I'll do this or I'll do that. And uh, But I think many of them will be quite taken aback to find that some of those things um, at the rate we're going, unless people do take some measures, are, are in jeopardy. Most definitely, but like I mentioned, I'm I'm encouraged by the progress that we've seen here in the yeah. last year, um, and and I'm hopeful that it's only going to continue. I you know just to also put this in in national context, other states are following suit um, in enacting wildlife corridor legislation, and I'm I'm hopeful that that will also be followed by funding both at a, at state and and federal level for for other landscapes across the nation. We in Florida really have the opportunity um, to write the rule book on how this is done. Yeah, and, and be a model. Be a model for the rest of the world. I, you know, it's, that's my hope, that's my aspiration, um, that, that the Florida Wildlife Corridor will still be intact 100 years from now um, and that it will be a lasting mark for our state. Okay, Tori, so let's just go for a moment or two into the screening tonight and just run through some details and and also, of course, we want to be sure to address the panel discussion, which I think if people don't have plans tonight and want to scoot out, I think they'll be uh, taken by the film, but also I think the panel discussion will be uh, really rewarding as well. So um, why don't you run us through just the, the basic details first of the screening? Absolutely. So the screening tonight of Saving the Florida Wildlife Corridor is going to take place at the Tampa Theater at 7 p.m., generally generously hosted by WEDU TVS. The event is entirely free, but registration is required, so please visit WEDU PBS's website. Um, we're not allowed to say, sorry, Tori, I should have mentioned, we're not allowed to say free technically on, on the station for the purposes of our license. But that's why I said ticket lists and some other things. But, yeah, basically the key thing is to register. So what's the best website to go to to find either further details, but especially to register if people do want to catch the uh, the film tonight? Yeah, visit savingthefloridawildlifecorridor.com. Okay, cool. And then as far as the panel discussion that happens immediately after the screening, want to talk a little bit about some of the folks that will be part of that discussion? Absolutely. So tonight I'll be moderating a panel discussion with Carlton Ward Jr., who's a National Geographic explorer and photographer featured in the film, as well as Justin Silva. He's an editor and producer from the National Geographic Society's Impact Media team who's joined us from Washington, D.C., uh, as well as Carrie Lacey, who's a sixth-generation cattle rancher from the Everglades Headwaters, who's featured in the film, and I have to say, one of my conservation heroes. I really hope that folks can get out to join us tonight um, to, to immerse themselves in this landscape. This film is so beautifully shot, if I may say so myself. Yeah, and you may, for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's really gorgeous. And again, it's, it's just, you know, you're sort of transported literally and figuratively through the corridor. And it's just it's gorgeous, but there's really some great uh, messages and details and stories along the way that people, I think, will be really glad they saw. So, so Tori, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. I hope people do get out to see the film tonight. I got a chance to see it a day or two ago, and it's, it's just magnificent. So 
Tori, thanks again for joining us on Talking Animals. Thank you, Duncan. Have a great time. You too. In a moment, I'll speak with Suzanne King about Gulfport Gets Rescued, the sprawling rescue and adoption extravaganza taking place in Gulfport, not coincidentally, this Saturday. We'll hear some details from Suzanne in a moment. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner and a piece with a little more philosophical bent than most. This is David Huntsberger with a piece called The God of Ants in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. It just sucks that anytime science is making some strides, religion always interjects and stops them. Stem cell or anything like that. Like, science will try to actually help disabled children. Hey, maybe we can get in there and tweak with the genes. Nope, we'll just keep praying. Sweet, that's worked never, so yeah, keep going with that. <laughs> and science will actually try to make a difference, and religion will come in and be like, uh-uh, you're playing God. Stem cells, you're playing God. Which I find is so odd that the same people who criticize you for playing God are the same ones that ask, what would Jesus do? <laughs> Seems a little hypocritical. Um, and who's to say who's ever played God? I have. You ever done it? I've played God. I went out and I found a little colony of ants, decided to make them my people. And uh, so I built them a little habitat, a little world they could live in. Only took me one day, I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> and I built them this little world and then I just started watching them. They took right to it. They loved it. They were disco dancing and jet skiing and having all kinds of fun. and. I thought, they probably want to know what this is all about. So one day I leaned in and I was like, hey guys, it's not about anything. Just enjoy yourselves. Have a good time. Peace. But I don't think they understood me because they just started waging war on each other immediately and dividing into different tribes. They were sacrificing virgin ants and stink bugs. It was pandemonium. And all the while that was going on, I looked down. This one little ant was crawling up my leg. I was like, oh, he's going to come try to look God in the eye or bite me. I can't have that. Uh, so I started blowing on him. I'm like, get off me, dude. Get off me. Then I realized an ant can never look you in the eye. An ant can only just sort of perceive that you're here. If you put your finger down in an ant's way, he doesn't see your finger. He just sees another hill on his way to work. And then I realized, yeah, I am a hill to the sand. I'm Mount Everest to the sand. And then I could picture his little climbing journal like, base camp, day two. Elevation, four feet. The wind is blowing incessantly. I lost my Sherpa a little over an hour ago. I doubt I'll ever see him again. I'll ride his mother when I get home. If I get home! And he did not get home. The wind was too strong for him, and he died. And <laughs> while all that was going on, I didn't realize I'd accidentally stepped in their little ocean I made for them, and a huge wave washed on the sea and swept a bunch of them out to their deaths. I was like, oh, sorry, guys. It's me, idiot God. I'm bad at this. My fault. Sorry. But they had spent so much time fighting about me, they'd completely forgotten who I was. So all the little scientist ants were running around like, it was tectonic plates off the coast. It was a shift. It was an earthquake. I was like, what tectonic? You ungrateful little shits. Enjoy this. Have some aftershocks. You miserable little assholes. Never forget. And uh, I was not a good god. That was David Huntsberger in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called The God of Ants, taken from his album, Humanitis. Now it's time to speak with Suzanne King about Gulfport Gets Rescued, the big annual event set to take place this Saturday, February 26th. This is Suzanne King on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, Suzanne. Good morning. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So if I'm not mistaken, this Saturday marks the 18th Gulfport Gets Rescued. It's Saturday, February 26th. Right. It's the 18th Gulfport Gets Rescued, though. Am I not correct it on is. that? It's yeah. the 18th annual. Yes, That's right. Yeah. And did you have to suspend it or modify it at any point to give our friend uh, the dreaded COVID? Um, we didn't. Actually, we were, we were very lucky. 
um, because in 2020, we had our event before the world shut down. Mm. And then in 21, things were starting to open up again. So we got lucky. Okay. Well, meanwhile, it seems like every year the Go For It Gets Rescued gets bigger and better. How does this year's event compare to uh, to past ones? Um, it's it's doing great. Um, we, uh, we last year and this year we have had um, a few less rescues. Normally we host around fifty rescues, and I think we have thirty this year and had about the same last year. Um, I think that a lot of the um, volunteers are, you know, older and they don't want to come out and, and risk getting COVID. Sure. Um, so that said, all of these rescues could use volunteers, I'm sure. Yeah. So if people are looking for uh, uh, some good uh, rescues or organizations to volunteer for, this might be a great way to, to meet and greet and uh, get involved just uh, as another byproduct of just attending Go For It Gets Rescued. So uh, is it still, I mean, it's in the past, I know it's been pretty sprawling, like spread across, I think, four, four blocks or thereabouts in the past. Is it still kind of that approach or is it a little bit modified with the uh, with the reduced um, uh, rescues? It's the city blocks. Um, we run from 28th Avenue at the library down to Shore Boulevard at the casino, um, and we're we're still pretty full. We're, yeah. we're not looking sparse at all. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm real excited for the for kids for sure. And uh, so in addition to the uh, the rescues, there's typically at least I think uh, vendors and um, other. Things and then at some point I th- I think we should talk about the signature trade at least in the past has been the Wiener Dog Derby. Is that happening this year? Yep. Okay. Yep, that's a staple. Yeah. No, for sure you can't not have that. So maybe for those not familiar, maybe you could just briefly describe the uh, the Wiener Dog Derby. Uh, the Wiener Dog Derby is a state it's a statewide qualifier. Um, they do derbies all throughout the year, all over the state. Um. It is a fundraiser for the Dotson Rescue Group. Um, there are several of them that they um, donate to. Um, and they'll do several different uh, little contests throughout the day. There's a peanut butter lick. There's a toilet paper wrap. Um, and then they have the wiener dog races. And they also have wiener wannabe races for <laughs> small breed dogs that aren't actually uh, wiener breeds. These are um, aspiring dachshunds, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Yeah. Well, that, that sounds yeah. super fun. And uh, anything else that people that have gone in the, in the past that will find uh, totally new this year? Any new wrinkle or new uh, element or activity that you've added? Um, yeah, we'll be, um, we'll be announcing Gulfport, uh, newest pet mayor, Gulfport, um, the Gulfport Historical Society started a fundraiser for the SPCA, um, a couple of years ago, and they have people, um, submit their pets to become the mayor of Gulfport Pet mayor could be a cat dog bird chicken any such thing and so we'll be announcing the pet mayor at one o'clock on saturday um and it's a race to the finish so uh people that are running or, or animals that are running for pet mayor their job is to raise funds so every vote's like a dollar or something oh i see very cool. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, so that's, that's pretty cool. 
That's very cool. All right, so I think we're just about to reach the end of our time here, Sam, but is there a website and or social media pages that people could find out more about Go For It Gets Rescued, if, especially if they're you know driving around, can't uh, uh, draw anything down? Yeah, it's uh, facebook.com Get Rescued Inc. Okay. And there's also getrescuedinc.org um, online. Okay, as a website, you're saying? Yep, yep. Okay, cool. All right, well, uh, good luck. Sounds like it's going to be another great uh, great day with lots of fun, and uh, I'm trying to figure out who I should bet on for the Wiener Dog Derby, but I've still, still <laughs> got to study my racing form there. But uh, yeah. anyway, all right, uh, thank you so much, Suzanne. Good luck for uh, Saturday's event. Sounds terrific. All right, thanks for having us. We you appreciate Bye-bye. Thank you. Coming up on WNF, the music kicks back in with Scott Elliott from noon to 3 p.m., a glorious three hours of music, followed by Robin Hooper with yet another three hours of music. And we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming and beyond. Meanwhile, on this show at the moment is the prize for naming the animal tunes. I'll be offering something fabulous from the Talking Animals Vault to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's named that animal tune... On Talking Animals on WMNF. Johnny is a joker, he's a bird, a very funny joker. He's a bird, but when he jokes my honey, he's a dog, his joking ain't so funny. What a dog. Johnny is a joker that's a trying to steal my baby, he's a bird dog. Johnny sings a love song like a bird, sings the sweetest love song. You ever heard But when he sings to my gal What a howl To me he's just a wolf dog On the prowl Johnny wants to fly away And hope you love my baby He's a bird dog All right, we'll take any guesses When we get off the air momentarily because we have just about reached the end of this edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Hope you join me next Wednesday for another edition. I also hope you'll uh, visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. Apple Podcasts are available too as well as on other podcast platforms. There are also links to our social media page and more and uh, you can also subscribe to our newsletter to find out about our guests a couple of days before and other news from the talking animals world that's all at talkinganimals.net i'm duncan Strauss. thanks very much for listening have a good week be kind to animals be kind to others be kind to yourself this is talking animals on wnf tampa brandon clearwater largo wikiwachi and beyond npr news headlines coming up momentarily and then the fabulous scott elliott for three hours of great great music we'll see you next wednesday thanks